The Liturgical Year by Dom Prosper Geringer. Chapter 2. The Mystery of Lent. We may be sure that a season so sacred as this of Lent is rich in mysteries. The Church has made it a time of recollection and penance, in preparation for the greatest of all her feasts. She would, therefore, bring into it everything that could excite the faith of her children, and encourage them to go through the arduous work of atonement for their sins. During Septuagesima, we had the number 70, which reminded us of those 70 years' captivity in Babylon, after which God's chosen people, being purified from idolatry, was to return to Jerusalem and celebrate the Pasch. It is the number 40 that the Church now brings before us, a number, as St. Jerome observes, which denotes punishment and affliction. See Ezekiel chapter 29. Let us remember that forty days and forty nights of the deluge, January, see Genesis chapter 7 verse 12, sent by God in his anger when he repented that he had made man and destroyed the whole human race with the exception of one family. Let us consider how the Hebrew people, in punishment for their ingratitude, wandered forty years in the desert before they were permitted to enter the promised land. See Numbers chapter 14 verse 33. Let us listen to our God commanding the prophet Ezekiel to lie forty days on his right side, as a figure of the siege which was to bring destruction on Jerusalem. See Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 6. There are two in the Old Testament who represent in their own persons the two manifestations of God, Moses, who typifies the law, and Elias, who is the figure of the prophets. Both of these are permitted to approach God, the first on Sinai, See Exodus chapter 29, verse 18, the second on Horeb. See Third Kings chapter 29, verse 8. But both of them have to prepare for the great favor by an expiatory fast of 40 days. With these mysterious facts before us, we can understand why it was that the Son of God, having become man for our salvation, and wishing to subject himself to the pain of fasting, chose the number of 40 days. The institution of Lent is thus brought before us with everything that can impress the mind with its solemn character, and with its power of appeasing God and purifying our souls. Let us, therefore, look beyond the little world which surrounds us and see how the whole Christian universe is, at this very time, offering this forty days' penance as a sacrifice of propitiation to the offended majesty of God. And let us hope that, as in the case of the Ninevites, he will mercifully accept this year's offering of our atonement, and pardon us our sins. The number of our days of Lent is then a holy mystery. Let us now learn from the liturgy, in what light the Church views her children during these forty days. She considers them as an immense army, fighting day and night against their spiritual enemies. We remember how, on Ash Wednesday, she calls Lent a Christian warfare. Yes, in order that we may have newness of life, which will make us worthy to sing once more our Alleluia, we must conquer our three enemies, the devil, the flesh, and the world. We are fellow combatants with our Jesus, for he too submits to the triple temptation, suggested to him by Satan in person. Therefore, we must have on our armor and watch unceasingly. And whereas it is of the most, utmost importance that our hearts be inspired, spirited and brave, the church gives us a war song of heaven's own making, which can fire even cowards up with hope of victory and confidence in God's help. It is the 19th Psalm. She inserts the whole of it in the Mass for the first Saturday of Lent, and every day introduces several of its verses in the Furial Office. She there tells us to rely on the protection wherewith our Heavenly Father covers us as with a shield, 
to hope under the shelter of his wings, to have confidence in him, or that he will deliver us from the snares of the hunter, who had robbed us of the holy liberty of the children of God, to rely upon the succor of the holy angels, who are our brothers, to whom our Lord hath given charge, that they keep us in all our ways. And who, when our Jesus permitted Satan to tempt him, were the adoring witnesses of his combat, and approached him after his victory, proffering to him their service and homage. Let us get well into these sentiments wherewith the church would have us be inspired. And during our six weeks' campaign, let us often repeat this admirable canticle, which so fully describes what the soldiers of Christ should be and feel in the season of the great spiritual warfare. But the church is not satisfied with thus animating us to the contest with our enemies. She would also have our minds engrossed with thoughts of deepest import, and for this end she puts therefore before us three great subjects, which she will gradually unfold to us before this and the great Easter solemnity. Let us all be attentive to these soul-stirring and instructive lessons. And firstly, there is the conspiracy of the Hebrews against our Redeemer. It will be brought before us in its whole history, from its first formation to its final consummation on the Great Friday, when we shall behold the Son of God hanging on the wood of the cross. The infamous workings of the temple will be brought before us so regularly that we shall be able to follow the plot in all its details. We shall be inflamed with love for the august victim, whose meekness, wisdom, and dignity bespeak a God. The divine drama, which began in the cave of Bethlehem, is to close on Calvary. We may assist at it by meditating on the passages of the gospel read to us by the church during these days of Lent. The second of the subjects offered to us for our instruction requires that we should remember how the Feast of Easter is to be the day of the new birth of our catechumens, and how in the early ages of the church, Lent was the immediate and solemn preparation given to the candidates for baptism. The holy liturgy of the present season retains much of the instruction she used to give to the catechumens, and as we listen to her magnificent lessons from both the Old and the New Testament, whereby she completed their initiation, we ought to think with gratitude on how we were not required to wait years before being made children of God, but were mercifully admitted to baptism, even in our infancy. We shall be led to pray for those new catechumens who, this very year, in far distant countries, are receiving instructions from their zealous missioners, and are looking forward, as to the postulants of the primitive church, to that grand feast of our Savior's victory over death, when they are to be cleansed in the waters of baptism, and receive from the contact of flow being regeneration. Thirdly, we must remember how formerly the public penitents, who had been separated on Ash Wednesday from the assembly of the faithful, were the object of the church's maternal solicitude during the whole forty days of Lent, and were be admitted to reconciliation on Maundy Thursday, if their repentance were such as to merit this public forgiveness. We shall have the admirable course of instructions, which were originally desi designed for these penitents, and which the liturgy, faithful as she is to such tradition, still retains for our sakes. As we read these sublime passages of the Scripture, we shall naturally think upon our own sins, and on what easy terms they were pardoned us. Whereas we had lived in other times, we should probably have been put through the ordeal of a public and severe penance. This will excite us to fervor, for she, we shall remember that whatever changes the indulgences of the church may lead her to make in her discipline, the justice of our God is ever the same. We shall find in all this an additional motive for offering to his divine majesty the sacrifice of a contrite heart. And we shall go through our penances with that cheerful eagerness, which this conviction of our deserving much severer ones will always bring with it. 
in order to keep up the character of mournfulness and austerity, which is so well suited to Lent, the church for many centuries, admitted very few feasts into this portion of her year, inasmuch as there is always joy where there is even a spiritual feast. In the 4th century, we have the Council of Laodicea forbidding, in its 51st canon, the keeping of feast or commemorations of any saints during Lent except on the Saturdays or Sundays. The Greek church rigidly maintained this point of Lenten discipline. Nor was it till many centuries after the Council of Laodicea that she made an exception for the 25th of March, on which day she now keeps the Feast of Our Lady's Annunciation. The Church of Rome maintained the same discipline, at least in principle, but she admitted the Feast of the Annunciation at a very early period, and somewhat later the Feast of the Apostle St. Matthias, on the 24th of February. During the last few centuries, she has admitted several other feasts into that portion of her general calendar, which coincides with Lent. Still, she observes a certain restriction out of respect for the ancient practice. The reason of the Church of Rome being less severe on this point of excluding the saints' feast during Lent is that Christians of the West never looked upon the celebration of a feast as incomparable with fasting. The Greeks, on the contrary, believe that the two are irreconcilable, and as a consequence of this principle, never observe a Saturday as a fasting day, because they always keep it as a solemnity, though they make Holy Saturday an exception and fast upon it. For the same reason, they do not fast upon the Annunciation. This strange idea gave rise in or on about the 7th century to a custom which is peculiar to the Greek Church. It is called the Mass of the Pre-Sanctified, that is to say, consecrated in a previous sacrifice. On each Sunday of Lent, the priest consecrates six hosts, one of which he re receives in the Mass. But the remaining five are reserved for a simple communion, which is made on each of the five following days without the holy sacrifice being offered. The Latin Church practices this rite only once in the year, that is, on Good Friday, and this is in commemoration of a sublime mystery, which we will explain in its proper place. The custom of the Greek Church was evidently suggested by the 49th Canon of the Council of Laodicea, which forbids the offering the bread of sacrifice during Lent except on the Saturdays and Sundays. The Greeks, some centuries later on, concluded from this canon that the celebration of the Holy Sacrifice was incompatible with fasting, and we learn from the controversy they had in the ninth century with the legate Humbert that the Mass of the Pre-Sanctified, which is no other authority to rest on save a canon of the famous Council in Truyo, was justified by the Greeks on this absurd plea, that the communion of the body and blood of our Lord broke the Lenten fast. The Greeks celebrate this rite in the evening, after Vespers, and the priest alone communicates, as is done now in the Roman liturgy on Good Friday. But for many centuries they have made an exception of the Annunciation. They interrupt the Lenten fast on this feast, they celebrate the Mass, and the faithful are allowed to receive Holy Communion. The canon of the Council of Laodicea was probably never received in the Western Church, if the suspension of the Holy Sacrifice during Lent was ever practiced in Rome, it was only on the Thursdays, and even that custom was abandoned in the 8th century, as we learn from Athanasius the Librarian, who tells us that Pope St. Gregory II, desiring to complete the Roman sacramentary, added Masses for the Thursdays of the first five weeks of Lent. It is difficult to assign the reason of this interruption of the Mass on Thursdays in the Roman Church, or of the like custom observed by the Church of Milan on the Fridays of Lent. The explanations we have found in different authors are not satisfactory. As far as Milan is concerned, we are inclined to think that not satisfied with the mere adoption of the Roman usage of not celebrating Mass on Good Friday, the Ambrosian Church extended this rite to all the Fridays of Lent. After thus briefly alluding to these details, we must close our present chapter by a few words on the Holy Rites, which are now observed during Lent in our Western churches. We have explained several of these in our Septuagesima. The suspension of the Alleluia, 
the purple vestments, the laying aside the deacon's dalmatic, and the subdeacon's tunic, the omission of the two joyful canticles, the glory in excelsis and the te deum, the substitution of the, more, of the mournful tract for the alleluia verse in the mass, the benedicimus domino instead of the ite misa est, the additional prayer said over the people after the post-communion collects on ferial days, the saying the vesper office before midday, excepting on the su- Sundays, all these are familiar to our readers. We have only now to mention, in addition, the genuflections prescribed for the conclusion of all the hours of the divine office on ferias, and the rubrics which bids the choir to kneel on those same days during the canon of the Mass. There were other ceremonies peculiar to the season of Lent which were observed in the churches of the West, but which have now for many centuries fallen into general disuse. We may say general because they are still partially kept up in some places. Of these rites, the most important posing was that of putting up a large veil between the choir and the altar, so that neither clergy nor people could look upon the holy mysteries celebrated within the sanctuary. This veil, which was called the curtain, and generally speaking, was of a purple color, was a symbol of the penance to which the sinner ought to subject himself, in order to merit the sight of that divine majesty, before whose face he had committed so many outrages. It signified, moreover, the humiliations endured by our Redeemer, who was a stumbling block to the proud temple, but as a veil that is suddenly drawn aside, these humiliations were given way, and be changed into the glories of the resurrection. Among other places where this rite is still observed, we may mention the Metropolitan Church of Paris, Notre Dame. It was the custom also in many churches to veil the crucifix and the statues of the saints as soon as Lent began. In order to excite the faithful to a livelier sense of penance, they were deprived of the consolation which the sight of these holy images always brings to the soul. But this custom, which is still retained in some places, was less general than the more expressive one used in the Roman Church, and which we will explain in our next volume. We mean the veiling the crucifix and statues only in Passion Time. We learn from the ceremonials of the Middle Ages that during Lent, and particularly on the Wednesdays and Fridays, processions used frequently to be made from one church to another. In monasteries, these processions were made in the cloister and barefooted. This custom was suggested by the practice of Rome, where there is a station for every day of Lent, and which for many centuries began by a procession to the stational church. Lastly, the church has always been in the habit of adding to her prayer during the season of Lent. Her present discipline is that on ferias, in cathedral and collegiate churches, which are not exempted by a custom to the contrary, the following additions are to be made to the canonical hours. On Mondays, the Office of the Dead. On Wednesday, the Gradual Psalms. And on Fridays, the Penitential Psalms. In some churches, during the Middle Ages, the whole psaltery was added each week of Lent to the usual office. Chapter 3. Practice During Lent After having spent the three weeks of Septuagesima in meditating upon our spiritual infirmities and upon the wounds caused in us by sin, we should be ready to enter upon the penitential season which the church has now begun. We have now a clearer knowledge of the justice and holiness of God, and of the dangers that await an impenitent soul, and that our repentance might be earnest and lasting. We have bade farewell to the vain joys and baubles of the world. Our pride has been humbled by the prophecy that these bodies would soon be like ashes that wrote the memento of death upon our foreheads. During these forty days of penance, which seems so long to our poor nature, we shall not be deprived of the company of our Jesus. He seems to have withdrawn from us during those weeks of Septuagesima, when everything spoke to us of his maledictions upon sinful man. But this absence has done us good. It has taught us how to tremble at the voice of God's anger. 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We have found it to be so. The spirit of penance is now active within us because we have feared. And now let us look upon the divine object that is before us. It is our Emmanuel, the same Jesus, but not under the form of the sweet babe whom we adored in his crib. He has grown to the fullness of the age of man, and wears the semblance of a sinner, trembling and humbling himself before the sovereign majesty of his father, whom we have offended, and to whom he now offers himself as the victim of propitiation. He loves us with a brother's love, and seeing that the season for our doing penance has begun, he comes to cheer us on by his own presence and his own example. We are going to spend forty days in fasting and abstinence. Jesus, who is innocent himself, goes through the same penance. We have separated ourselves, for a time, from the pleasures and vanities of the world. Jesus withdraws from the company and sight of men. We intend to assist at the divine services more assiduously, and pray more fervently, than at other times. Jesus spends forty days and forty nights in praying like the humblest suppliant, and all this for us. We are going to think over our past sins and bewail them in bitter grief. Jesus suffers for them and weeps over them in the silence of the desert, as though he himself had committed them. No sooner had he received baptism and from the hands of St. John than the Holy Ghost led him to the desert. The time had come for his showing himself to the world. He would begin by teaching us a lesson of immense importance. He leaves the saintly precursor and the admiring multitude that he had seen the Divine Spirit descend upon him and heard the Father's voice proclaiming him to be his beloved Son. He leaves them and goes into the desert. Not far from the Jordan there rises a rugged mountain, which has received in after ages the name of Korantana. It commands a view of the fertile plain of Jericho, the Jordan, and the Dead Sea. It is within a cave of this wild rock that the Son of God now enters, his only companions being the dumb animals who have chosen this same for their own shelter. He has no food wherewith to satisfy the pangs of hunger. The barren rock can yield him no drink. His only bed must be of stone. Here he is to spend forty days, after which he will permit the angels to visit him and bring him food. Thus does our Savior go before us on the holy path of Lent. He has borne all its fatigues and hardships. That so we, when we called upon to tread the narrow way of our Lenten penance, might have his example wherewith to silence the excuses and sophisms and repugnances of self-love and pride. The lesson is here too plainly given not to be understood. The law of doing penance for sin is here too clearly shown, and we cannot plead ignorance. Let us honestly accept the teaching and practice it. Jesus leaves the desert where he had spent the forty days and begins his preaching with these words, which he addresses to all men. Do penance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let us not harden our hearts to this invitation, lest there be fulfilled in us the terrible threat contained in those other words of our Redeemer. Unless ye shall do penance, ye shall perish. Now, penance consists in contrition of the soul and in mortification of the body. These two parts are essential to it. The soul has willed the sin. The body has frequently cooperated in its commission. Moreover, man is composed of both soul and body. Both, then, should pay homage to their creator. The body is to share with the soul, either the, the delights of heaven or the torments of hell. There cannot, therefore, be any thorough Christian life or any earnest penance, where the body does not partake, does not take part in both and with the soul. But it is the soul which gives reality to penance. The gospel teaches this by the example it holds out to us of the prodigal son, of Magdalene, of Zacchaeus, and of St. Peter. The soul then must be resolved to give up every sin. She must heartily grieve over those she has committed. 
She must hate sin. She must shun the occasions of sin. The sacred scriptures have a word for this inward disposition, which has been adopted by the Christian world and admirably expresses the state of the soul that is turned away from her sins. This word is conversion. The Christian should, therefore, during Lent, study to excite himself to this repentance of heart, and look upon it as the essential foundation of all his Lenten exercises. Nevertheless, he must remember that this spiritual penance would be a mere delusion, were he not to practice the mortification of the body. Let him study the example given him by his Savior, who grieves indeed and weeps over our sins, but he also expiates them by his bodily suffrages. Hence it is that the Church, the infallible interpreter of her Divine Master's will, tells us that the repentance of our heart will not be accepted by God, unless it is accompanied by fasting and abstinence. How great then is the illusion of those Christians who forget their past sins, or compare themselves with others whose lives they take to have been worse than their own, and thus satisfied with themselves can see no harm or danger in the easy life they intend to pass for the rest of their days. They will tell you that there can be no need of their thinking of their past sins, for they have made a good confession. It is not life that they have led since that time a sufficient proof of their solid piety. And why should anyone speak to them about God's justice and mortification? Accordingly, as soon as Lent approaches, they must get all manner of dispensations. Abstinence is an inconvenience. Fasting has an effect upon their health. It would interfere with their occupations. It's such a change from their ordinary way of living. Besides, there are so many people who are better than themselves, and yet who never fast or abstain. And as the idea never enters their minds of supplying, for the penance is prescribed by the church with other penitential exercises, such persons as these gradually and unsuspectingly lose the Christian spirit. The church sees this frightful decay of supernatural energy, but she cherishes what is still left by making her Latin observances easier, year after year. With the hope of maintaining that little and of seeing it strengthened for some better future, she leaves to the justice of God her children who hearken not to her, when she teaches them how they might even now propitiate his anger. Alas, these are children of whom we are speaking are quite satisfied that things should be as they are, and never think of judging their own conduct by the examples of Jesus and his saints, or by the undeviating rules of Christian penance. It is true, there are exceptions, but how rare they are, especially in our large towns. Groundless prejudices, idle excuses, bad example, all tend to lead men from the observance of Lent. It is not sad to hear people giving such a reason as this for they're not fasting or abstaining, because they feel them. Surely they forget that the very aim of fasting and abstinence is to make these bodies of sin suffer and feel. And what will they answer on the day of judgment when our Savior shall show them how the very Turks, who were the disciples of a gross and sensual religion, had the courage to practice every year the forty days' austerities of their Ramadan. But their own conduct will be the loudest accuser. These very persons, who persuade themselves that they have not strength enough to bear the abstinence and fasting of Lent, even in their present mitigated form, think nothing of going through incomparably greater fatigues for the sake of temporal gains or worldly enjoyments. Constitutions which have broken down in the pursuit of pleasure, which is to say, the least, are frivolous and always dangerous, would have kept up all their vigor had the law of God and his church and not the desire to please the world been the guide of their conduct. But such is the, is the indifference wherewith this non-observance of Lent is treated, that it never excites the slightest trouble or remorse of conscience. And they who are guilty of it will argue with you that people who lived in the Middle Ages may perhaps have been able to keep Lent, but that nowadays it is out of the question. And they can coolly say, 
This in the face of all that the Church has done to adapt her Lenten discipline to the physical and moral weaknesses of the present generation. How comes it that whilst these men have been trained in or converted to the faith of their fathers, they can forget that the observance of Lent is an essential mark of Catholicity, and that when the Protestants undertook to reform her in the 16th century, one of their chief grievances was that she insisted on her children mortifying themselves by fasting and abstinence. But it will be asked, are there then no lawful dispensations? We answer that there are, and that they are more needed now than in former ages, owing to the general weakness of our constitutions. Still, there is greater danger of our deceiving ourselves. If we have the strength to go through great fatigues, when our own self-love is gratified by them, how is it we are too weak to observe abstinence? If a slight inconvenience deters us from doing this penance, how shall we ever make expiation for our sins? For expiation is essentially painful to nature. The opinion of our physician that fasting will weaken us may be false, or it may be correct, but it is not this mortification of the flesh the very object that the church aims at, knowing that our soul will profit by the body being brought into subjection. But let us suppose the dispensation to be necessary, that our health would be impaired, and the duties of our state of life neglected. If we were to observe the law of Lent to the letter, do we in such case endeavor by other works of penance to supply for those which our health does not allow us to observe? Are we grieved and humbled to find ourselves thus unable to join with the rest of the faithful children of the church in bearing the yoke of Lenten discipline? Do we ask our Lord to grant us the grace, next year, of sharing in the merits of our fellow Christians, and of observing those holy practices, which give the soul an assurance of mercy and pardon? If we do, the dispensation will not be detrimental to our spiritual interests, and when the Feast of Easter comes, inviting the faithful to partake of its grand joys, we may confidently take our place side by side with those who have fasted, for though our bodily weakness has not permitted us to keep pace with them exteriorly, our heart has been faithful to the spirit of Lent. How long a list of proofs would we could still give of the negligence into which the modern spirit of self-indulgence leads so many among us in regards of fasting and abstinence? Thus there are Catholics to be found in every part of the world who make their Easter communion and profess themselves to be children of the Catholic Church who yet have no idea of the obligations of Lent. Their very notion of fasting and abstinence is so vague that they are not aware that these two practices are quite distinct one from the other, and that the dispensation from one does not in any way include a dispensation from the other. If they have lawfully or unlawfully obtained exemption from abstinence, it never so much as enters into their minds that the obligation of fasting is still binding upon them during the whole forty days. Or if they have granted to them a dispensation from fasting, they conclude that they may eat any kind of food they wish. Such ignorance is this as this is the natural result of the indifference wherewith the commandments and traditions of the church are treated. So far, we have been speaking of the non-observance of Lent in its relation to individuals and Catholics. Let us now say a few words upon the influence which this same non-observance has upon a whole people or nation. There are but few social questions which have not been ably and spiritually treated by the, of by the public writers of the age, who have, their, who have devoted their talent to the study of what is called political economy, and it has often been a matter of surprise to us that they should have overlooked a subject of such deep interest as this, the results produced on society by the abolition of Lent, that is to say, of an institution, which more than any other keeps up in the public mind a keen sentiment of moral right and wrong. 
inasmuch as it imposes on a nation an annual expiation for sin. No shrewd penetration is needed to see the difference between these two nations, one of which observes each day a 40 days penance in reparation of the violations committed against the law of God, and another whose very principles reject all such solemn reparation. And looking at the subject from another point of view, it is not to be feared that the excessive use of animal foods tends to weaken rather than strengthen the Constitution. We are convinced of it. The time will come when a greater proportion of vegetable and less of animal diet will be considered an essential means of maintaining the strength of the human frame. Let then the children of the church courageously observe the Lenten practice of penance. Peace of conscience is essential to Christian life, and yet it is prom promised to none but truly penitent souls. Lost innocence is to be regained by the humble confession of the sin, when it is accompanied by the absolution of the priest. But let the faithful be on their guard against the dangerous error, which would persuade them that they have nothing to do when once pardoned. Let them remember the solemn warning given them by the Holy Ghost in the sacred scriptures. Be not without fear about sin forgiven. Our confidence of having been forgiven should be in proportion to the change or conversion of our heart, the greater our present detestation of our past sins, and the more earnest our desire to do penance for them for the rest of our lives, the better founded is our confidence that they have been pardoned. Man knoweth not, as the same holy volume assures us, whether he be worthy of love or hatred, but that he keeps up within him the spirit of penance, has every reason to hope that God loves him. But the courageous observance of the church's precept of fasting and abstinence during Lent must be accompanied by those two other eminently good works, to which so God frequently urges us in the scripture. Prayer and alms deeds, just as under the term fasting, the church comprises all kinds of mortifications. So under the word prayer, she includes all those exercises of piety, whereby the soul holds intercourse with her God. More frequent attendance at the services of the church, assisting daily at Mass, spiritual reading, meditation upon eternal truths and the Passion, hearing sermons, and above all, the approach of the sacraments of penance and the Holy Eucharist. These are the chief means whereby the faithful should offer to God the homage of prayer during this holy season. Alms deeds comprise all the works of mercy to our neighbor and are unanimously recommended by the holy doctors of the church as being the necessary complement of fasting and prayer during Lent. God has made it a law to which he has graciously bound himself, that charity shown towards our fellow creatures with the intention of pleasing our Creator shall be rewarded as though it were done to himself. How vividly this brings before us the reality and sacredness of the tie which he would have to exist between all men. Such indeed is its necessity that our Heavenly Father will not accept the love of any heart that refuses to show mercy. But on the other hand, he accepts as genuine and as done to himself the charity of every Christian, who by a work of mercy shown to a fellow man is really acknowledging and honoring that sublime union, which makes all men to be one family, with God as its Father. Hence it is that alms deeds done with this intention are not merely acts of human kindness, but are raised to the dignity of acts of religion, which have God for their direct object, and the power of appeasing his divine justice. Let us remember the counsel given by the archangel Raphael to Tobias. He was on the point of taking leave of this holy family and returning to heaven, and these were his words. Prayer is good with fasting and alms, more than to lay up treasures of gold, for alms delivereth from death, and the same is that which purgeth away sins, and maketh to find mercy and life everlasting. Equally strong is the recommendation given to this virtue by the book of Ecclesiasticus. Water quencheth a flaming fire, and alms resisteth sins. 
And again, shut up alms in the heart of the poor, and it shall obtain help for thee against evil. The Christian should keep these consoling promises ever before his mind, but more especially during the season of Lent. The rich man should show the poor, whose whole year is a fast, that there is a time when even he has his self-imposed privations. The faithful observance of Lent naturally produces a saving. Let that saving be given to Lazarus. Nothing surely could be more opposed to the spirit of this holy season than the keeping up of a table as richly and delicately provided as at other periods of the year, when God permits us to use all the comforts compatible with the means he has given us. But how thoroughly Christian is it that during these days of penance and charity, the life of the poor man should be made more comfortable in proportion as that of the rich shares in the hardships and privations of his suffering brethren throughout the world. Poor and rich would then present themselves with all the beauty of fraternal love upon them. At the divine banquet of the Paschal Feast, to which our risen Jesus will invite us after these forty days are over. There is one means more whereby we are to secure to ourselves the grand graces of Lent. It is the spirit of retirement and separation from the world. Our ordinary life, that is, such as it is during the rest of the year, should all be made to pay tribute to the holy season of penance. Otherwise, the salutary impression produced on us by the holy ceremony of Ash Wednesday will soon be effaced. The Christian ought, therefore, to forbid himself, during Lent, all the vain amusements, entertainments, and parties of the world he lives in. As regards theaters and balls, which are the the world in the very height of its power to do for the position he holds in society oblige him to it. But if he, from his own free choice, he throws himself amidst such dangers during the present holy season of penance and recollection, he offers an insult to his character, and must needs cease to believe that he has sins to atone for, and a God to propitiate. The world, we mean that a part of which is Christian, has thrown off all those external indications of mourning and penance, which we read of as being so religiously observed in the ages of faith. Let that pass, but there is one thing which can never change, God's justice and man's obligation to appease that justice. The world may rebel as much as it will against that sentence, but the sentence is irrevocable. Unless ye do penance, ye shall all perish. It is God's own word. Say, if you will, that few nowadays give ear to it, but for that very reason many are lost. They, too, who hear this word must not forget the warnings given them by our divine Savior himself. In the gospel read to us on Sexagesima Sunday, he told us how some of the seed is trodden down by the passers-by, or eaten by the fowls of the air, how some falls on rocky soil and gets parched, and how, again, some is choked by thorns. Let us be wise and spare no pains to become that good ground, which not only receives the divine seed, but brings forth a hundredfold for the Easter harvest which is at hand. An unavoidable feeling will arise in the minds of some of our readers as they peruse these pages, in which we have endeavored to embody the spirit of the church, such as it is expressed, not only in the liturgy, but also in the decrees of councils and in the writings of the Holy Fathers. The feeling we allude to is one of great regret at not finding, during this period of the liturgical year, the touching and exquisite poetry, which gave such a charm to the forty days of our Christmas solemnity. First came Septuagesima, throwing the gloomy shade over those enchanting visions of the mystery of Bethlehem, and now we have got into a desert land, with thorns at every step, and no springs of water to refresh us. Let us not complain, however. Holy Church knows our wants, our true wants, and is intent on supplying them. Neither must we be surprised at her insisting on a severer reparation for Easter than for Christmas. At Christmas we were to approach our Jesus as an infant. 
All she put us through then were the Advent exercises, for the mystery of our redemption were but the beginning. And of those who went to Jesus' crib there were many, who, like the poor shepherds of Bethlehem, might be called simple, at least in this sense, that they did not sufficiently realize either the holiness of their, of their incarnate God or the mystery and guilt of their own conscience. But now that the sins of the eternal God has entered the path of penance, now that we are about to see him a victim to every humiliation and suffering even a death upon a cross, the church does not spare us. She rouses us from our ignorance and our self-satisfaction. She bids us strike our breasts, have compunction in our souls, mortify our bodies, because we are sinners. Our whole life ought to be one of penance. Fervent souls are ever doing penance. Could anything be more just or necessary than that we should do some penance during these days, when our Jesus is fasting in the desert and is to die on Calvary? There is a sentence of this, our Redeemer, when he spoke to the daughters of Jerusalem on the day of his passion. Let us apply it to ourselves. If in the green wood they do these things, what shall they? What shall be done in the dry? Oh, what a revelation is here. And yet by the mercy of the Jesus who speaks it, the dry wood may become the green, and so not be burned. The church hopes, nay, her whole energy is laboring, that this may be. Therefore she bids us bear the yoke. She gives us a lent. Let us only courageously tread the way of penance, and the light will gradually beam upon us. If we are now far off from our God by the sins that are upon us, this holy season will be to us what the saints call the purgative life, and will share will give us that purity, which will enable us to see our Lord in the glory of his victory over death. If, on the contrary, we are already living the illuminative life, if during the three weeks of Septuagesima we have bravely sounded the depth of our miseries, our Lent will give us a clearer view of him who is our light. And if we could acknowledge him as our God when we see him as the babe of Bethlehem, our soul's eye will not fail to recognize him in the divine penitent of the desert, or in the bleeding victim of Calvary.